we're going to talk about a tiny little chunk in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's an apostle, a, a disciple of Jesus's, an eyewitness to these things. And in particular, we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount or the counter kingdom. Now, let's keep this simple. When you hear that phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom, I want you to kind of in your mind go to this particular place. And we'll unpack this and flesh it out as the semester goes. But for tonight, as you think about this phrase, the kingdom of God, I want you to think of, have you ever had a boss, a coach, a mom, a dad, someone whose authority you were under, you were under their rule, but you loved it. You flourished. You came alive. Uh, you, you found out who you were. You found out what your, what your niche was. You, you, you thrived. You blossomed. When we talk about being under the, the rule and authority of Jesus and what kind of king he is, we're talking about a place where people come alive. Caroline read the passage a minute ago, so let's pray and we'll get into this. Jesus, we thank you that you're alive. You're not an idea that we gather to talk about. You're not an ideology or religion that we gather to try to perfect and really get down deep into our bones, but you're alive and you're resurrected and you're powerful. And so tonight, our hope and our confidence is that you're, you're still you. Uh, we want to know you. We want to uh, be compelled and attracted to living under your rule, to living in your kingdom. We're so compelled and attracted to other kingdoms, other ways of living. Help us, we pray. For your sake and ours. Amen. My question to you as we, we look at this short little passage for the next few minutes is this. How bad would a kingdom have to be for you to risk your life trying to escape it? How tight would a leader's fist have to be around your throat suffocating you? How tight would that have to be for you to run away from everything you've invested your life in everything you have to escape that grip. This is one of those questions that this week isn't hypothetical because three days ago on Sunday, the whole world got the answer to that question. If you were paying attention, I know it was moving day for some of you, it was a lot going on, but if you were paying attention to the news, you saw with the rest of the globe what was going on in Kabul as a country implodes in 24 hours. Did you see the video of those Afghan mom and dads uh, bringing their kids in wheelbarrows, rushing to the airport, trying to get on a plane before the brutal fist of the Taliban crashes down on them and the beatings begin and the executions begin and the oppression begins and the tyranny begins? A lot of those people couldn't get in the plane and so they got on the plane and they grabbed onto the landing gear or the wings or anything that they could hold on to. I saw one plane that as it took off and gained altitude probably still had a dozen people clinging to the bottom of it. That's how bad a kingdom would have to be for people to risk their lives to get out of it in the hopes that I don't know where this plane is going but maybe it's going somewhere better than what's here. The question when people grab onto landing gear and try to get on a plane that they know is about to be at 30,000 feet is why did they do it? Why do something so desperate and so dangerous? I don't know, 
But if they're like us, and I think they are, it had to be some kind of a mixture of just desperation because of the kingdom that they now lived in and hope for whatever kingdom, wherever kingdom they were going to go to that wouldn't be as oppressive or suffocating as the one that they had known before and that was now back. And friends, that's the sad scene. I'm not trying to be the Debbie Downer on the first night. Welcome back. But I want you to have this scene and those images and that video in your mind when we look back down at your page in front of you with what Matthew talks about. Jesus was doing before he gives what we'll spend the rest of the fall talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the scene. Now, again, remember that Matthew isn't just kind of a random distant author who was, uh, you know, gathering up accounts. Matthew was eyewitness. He's describing a day he was there for. He participated in these events he writes about. He's an eyewitness. And he is describing who some of Jesus' first followers, the first citizens of this reign and rule, this kingdom of God that Jesus brought in. Verse 23, who was there? Who was there? Who ran to the airport? Verse 23, the deceased, the sick, the afflicted. Verse 24, Matthew gives us more detail. All who were ill with various diseases from all the surrounding area and the surrounding cities, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. So again, I'm asking you to picture something in your mind, not just hear something. Imagine it. That's the crowd that's there when the king comes and his kingdom is established. And their friends, because Matthew said these people were brought to Jesus. So some of you are caretakers for a parent, a grandparent, a sibling with cancer, special needs. Maybe you've been a best friend to someone who's had a very long and debilitating bout with mental illness. And you know that for the caretakers of the afflicted or the diseased, they groan and they're just as desperate often as those they take care of, right? That's the crowd. This bottom of the barrel, limping, bleeding, teary-eyed, weary crowd and their friends. They're the first there. You know, I thought of um, something that I'd seen, I think it was four years ago, was Rio the Olympics before Tokyo? I think that's right. It was the Rio de Janeiro Olympics, the Paralympics. You know the Parade of Nations, which is like the first night opening ceremonies? Uh, there's just all this pageantry and light shows and everything. And then they announce each nation one by one. And uh, all the athletes of that nation enter the stadium. They're waving their flags and got flowers and everything, waving at the crowds. But this was the Paralympics. And so as nation after nation came in, I'm seeing, you know, half their team is in wheelchairs. Some of their team is missing both legs or both arms. Some of them are blind and holding around the neck of a teammate who can see. Some are deaf. Some are on crutches. Some have prosthetics. Friends, that's the scene. That's the imagery. That's the picture of this moment. And hear this. These are the VIPs in the kingdom of God. These are the front row seat, backstage pass, first access kind of people. When God comes, when God, not a politician, not a social worker, when the living and true God, when he comes and sets up his rule, his kingdom, his neighborhood, his new society, 
That's who's first in. That's who's first in. So, and, and look at how he responds to them. Here is, here is a king. Here's a king. The king of all kings who, as it were, stops the motorcade. And the limousine pulls over and he gets out and he starts working the crowd. And the crowd grows and it grows and it grows. And he's not there for just a little photo op and then back in the car and back to the palace. He's there to listen to their stories. He's there to touch them. Which, by the way, for a rabbi in this age, no rabbi would have been around people like this. They were unclean. They were literally deemed untouchable. People thought whatever they had is contagious. It's going to get on you. Best to stay away. And here is Jesus in the middle of the crowd, and the sun sets. And guess who's still there? Healing every disease, every affliction, every person oppressed. And he's there, and he's there, and he's there. Let's take a second to apply this to ourselves so that the rest of what we talk about can apply to you as well. Those, or those of you here who have experienced the worst that this world has to offer, who've been most cut by the kingdoms of this world, which we'll define tonight and in the rest of the semester, but those who've been most cut by that are the most prone to run to an airport. You're the most prone to run to a king like Jesus for a shot at deliverance. Those are the people, in a sense, prepared for this kind of king and this kind of kingdom. Jesus is going to say in the, the, the words ahead in the Sermon on the Mount that we'll start with next week, he's going to say things like, blessed, or the lucky ones in my kingdom are the spiritually poor. Those who come to me and they're like, I blew all my money, I wasted my life, I've got nothing, I need mercy. It's so counterintuitive to how we think about religion, right? Every other religion says, blessed are the spiritually devoted. Blessed are the morally upright. And Jesus, the one true and living king who's come to earth, says, blessed are those who have nothing to their name, morally, spiritually, relationally, no hope, have blown it all. He says, they're the lucky ones. Why? Because they're the ones who run to the airport, the ones who have the most to lose in these kingdoms, the ones who have the most to gain in his kingdom, the ones who are most desperate because they see the world the way it actually is, and they're not making excuses for it anymore. They tend to be people who run to get on a plane, to get out of there. You know who doesn't? So the Afghan war's been going on as long as almost everyone in this room has been alive. 20 years. So I imagine there's some 15-year-olds in Kabul right now who are like, people, stop freaking out. Like, it's not going to be that bad. Just go with the flow. Don't cause a stink and you'll be fine. Because they've never lived a day under Taliban rule. They've heard some stories, but it's never really affected them. And that could describe the attitude of some of, some of us, where you could be thinking, um, man, this guy's coming in hot. Like, night one, aren't y'all taking this Jesus stuff a little bit too seriously? Like, is it really that bad? Is, is the world around us, is my world inside of me really that, am I that desperate? Well, here's the thing. The way that Jesus confronts you and me with his kingdom isn't by saying everything's as bad as it could be. Doom and gloom, run for your lives. It's as awful as it could ever, you could ever imagine. He doesn't do that. That's not what he went through Galilee preaching according to Matthew. 
nor does he go through all of Galilee, trashing all of the earthly kingdoms that you and I are building our lives on. He's not the kid on the beach who just goes around like kicking over sandcastles. This sucks, that sucks, everything's terrible. Don't you know better than to like put your worth and identity and your wealth or your social standing or kind of being the queen of the friend group or kind of being the guy who gets the best job out of college or whatever. He doesn't go through all of Galilee, which is this whole northern half of Israel. He doesn't go through there preaching that. He's a different kind of king. What he does do is he goes around proclaiming the good news of his kingdom and healing every disease. That's what Matthew says. So hear this. Jesus is going around saying, my reign and my rule, when I'm your king, when you live under my gracious authority as your king, as your master, that's when all of your little kingdom, all of your other desires will be truly fulfilled and realized. And, and let me say it even better. Jesus' kingdom is the true realization of what all the other earthly kingdoms are trying to get at, are trying to accomplish. Let's bring this down to earth. Do you really want meaning and mission in your life? Do you want there to be like some kind of outside of you momentum that's bigger than you, that's pulling you along, that's framing your story, that you're, you're caught up in, something, a mission so much bigger than just how am I going to kill time from nine until midnight? Do you want something that's just pushing you out into the world, a mission to conquer alongside other people? Well, Jesus will say that it's only, that's only going to be truly, fully realized when you yield yourself to his rule. He has a mission for you. He has meaning for you. And I think he'll add, after he says that, the Silicon Valley kingdom of gaming and virtual reality will promise you that, but it can't quite get there. I don't think he would say, it's bad. I think he would say, be careful asking it to be a kingdom for you, a place of security and refuge and permanence. He would say, do you want to know peace and calm on your insides? Do you want to, do you want to become increasingly unfamiliar with what panic feels like? Do you want to ever experience a month where you're like, oh, come to think of it, like it's been a long time since I was like freaking out, anxious about whatever. Jesus says, when you know him as master and king who protects you and provides for you, who's always 10 steps ahead of you preparing the way, you'll know peace. You'll know peace down to your bones. But he says, you want to go the American dream way and seek first everything else and then the kingdom will be given to you. He says, you're going you're to see your life just go down the tube because you're always going to be anxious about what's the market going to do. Is there enough money in my account? Am I going to keep this job or am I about to get fired or laid off? He says, do you want to see society restored to justice, to equity, to fairness, or the environment restored to clean? He's going to say, great, that's my agenda too. I made all of these things. I'm the God of justice. I hate impartiality. So he's on board with you there, but he says, if you want to put the weight of your life, the eggs of your, your all of the eggs in the basket of some political agenda or societal agenda. He's saying, you're gonna be the victim of every election cycle. Did your people get elected? 
Is your political agenda getting, uh, and if your people did get elected, are they gonna be true to what they promised? Are they gonna be able to deliver on what they said they were gonna do? Jesus is not smashing our kingdom aspirations. You were made to dream for these things. You were made to want these things. But he's saying, I am the king of kings. And it's only under my reign and my authority and my grace that these things are attainable. So Jesus isn't going around kicking over our sandcastle kingdoms. Instead, what he's doing, the way he's going about it is saying, he, he's showing you a castle made of rock on rock. And he's leaving it almost for us to deduce the takeaway of like, oh, um, all this stuff that I'm chasing is made of sand and built on sand. It's always cracking and falling apart. So you could call that the compare and contrast approach. But you could also call Jesus' approach in these little sentences here uh, the show-and-tell approach. That's how he goes about showing his kingdom to us. Now, listen, let's be honest. Some of you are thinking in your head, or have been in the past few minutes, dude, this guy has not defined his terms, neither has Jesus. Aren't you supposed to start by saying, this is the kingdom of God, here's our definition, and here's all... You're like, he hadn't done that. This is all so abstract. Like, who talks like this in real life? And you're thinking that, and I get it. I'm a concrete thinker. I like stuff kind of in street language, but I want you to see something. Jesus doesn't define his terms up front. Jesus doesn't do tell and show. Jesus does show and tell. That's his style. Both are important. His word interprets what he does. It tells you the meaning of it. It tells you what it all means for you, the significance of it. It's his interpretation of who he is and what he's doing. But he often prefers to show you something first, and he shows you his kingdom before he talks about it. And this is what we see with all of the healings that he's doing. Jesus lets you taste the sweetness of life under his rule before he goes up on a mountain and teaches you about the sweetness of life under his rule. He's a savior first and then a teacher. So look, all these people come to Jesus. I, we've already talked about them, the afflicted, the diseased, the oppressed, the, the, the epileptic, the paralytics. They all come to him or they're brought to him. And there's no letter writing campaign. There's no petition. There's no twisting of the arm. There's no, if you do this for us, we'll do this for you. There's not even a record of them asking Jesus to heal them. It's almost as if it's G Jesus's deepest instinct when weak, broken people who can't fix themselves come to him. It's almost as if, wouldn't you say, his, his instinct is to reach out and restore, to heal, to put back together. Do you see that too? Or do you think I'm just making this up? It's second nature to him because it is his nature to heal, to help, to lift heavy burdens, to lift the crushing weight off these people who were strangers to him at the moment to lift it off their shoulders. And I wanna get something like, this maybe would be obvious, maybe it wouldn't, so let's go there and just clarify it real quick. Some of you might be thinking, um, but I kinda grew up comfortably, like I didn't grow up in poverty, I've never really been oppressed or the victim of you know, terrible injustice, and I don't have a, a 
disability or anything like that, and you're like, I'm having trouble relating to this crowd, the VIPs, the early invites, let's do some faithful reading between the lines of what these people's lives would be like, shall we? If you had been a paralytic for 25 or 45 or 55 years, what do you think your emotions or your thought life or your aspirations in life would be like? Or what if you're the girl in the family of 12 kids and you're the blind one? You didn't ask to be blind, but you are blind and you never left the house. You never got a job. You were always dependent on everybody else. You were always treated as different than everybody else. What's that like? Feeling invisible? Feeling forgotten? Feeling left behind? Disenchanted? Despairing? Maybe cynical? Maybe jaded? Disappointed? Life's not what you expected it to be? You're not who you expected you to be? And you're not happy with who you see in the mirror? Friends, that's what the inner life of these paralytics and those oppressed by demons and those who are diseased, that was their inner life. Can you relate to that? Does anybody in this room feel that way? If you do, pay closer attention to what comes next. Jesus heals them. And again, they didn't twist his arm. Um, and I want you to remember something. I think it's fair to say that we uh, don't think very biblically about miracles. And I'm not, I'm not talking to those of you who don't believe in miracles. I mean, I'm talking to those of us who you grew up in the church or you're a Christian and you think about miracles almost like a magic trick, like Jesus suspending reality and doing, like defying all odds. It's a miracle. He walks again. And that's not the way the Bible talks about miracles. There's a really old guy. He's 95 or 100. His name is Jürgen Moltmann. He's a German theologian. And all of that aside, he, I think he gets it right. This is what he says. He says, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of his creation the powers of destruction. He is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. Get this. Jesus' healings aren't supernatural miracles in a natural world. They're the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized and wounded. Here's what, he, here's what he means. The abnormal thing in this account wasn't that Jesus healed these people. It was the fact that they were sick. The fact that they were oppressed. The fact that they had seizures. That's what's not normal. That's what's foreign. That's what's alien. That's the, never the way the world was supposed to be when he made this world. His miracles are simply restoring what's most natural and should be most familiar. He's bringing the world and people and bodies and souls back to what they were always meant to be. Miracles are bringing the world and making it the way it's supposed to be not suspending the way the world is and trying to make it into something new. This is a little burst. It's an appetizer of what it means for Jesus to rule. He is the resurrected king, and everywhere he goes, springtime happens. Life bursts out. 
So when Jesus hears the prayer of a girl who did something this summer that she never imagined she was capable of doing, she was raised better than doing it. She knew better in the moment she shouldn't have done it. She feels shamed and guilty because of it every moment since. She doesn't talk about it to anybody. When Jesus, this king, hears her pray for innocence and forgiveness, God has given, and he forgives her, God has given her a taste of the way it was always meant to be between him and her, reconciled, at peace, with holiness, with righteousness, clean. He's bringing that person, that girl, he's bringing his people back to the way it was always meant to be. When God converts someone from death to life in Jesus, he is invading what was never meant to be, the unnatural, the foreign, the weird, the terrible, and he's bringing it back to the way it was supposed to be, where God dwelled with his people, us in his presence, and at peace with him. That's what he has set out to do in Jesus the King and through his kingdom. So when you feel a million miles away from God and you pray for a sense of his presence and he gives you that little sense of his presence, he's giving you a taste of the way it's always going to be when he finishes making the world new, when his kingdom is fully established. Here's the point, everybody. The humanity, the society that Jesus is bringing is not unfamiliar. It's actually essentially familiar. It's deeply normal. It's the world that you're homesick for. It's the person that you wish you could be. It's the God that you're homesick for. That's what he has come to restore. Let's end by getting practical with how this applies perhaps to you. How does someone participate in this kingdom that Jesus the King has brought and is setting up? How do you get to be a part of it? How do you intersect paths with this? Well, here's the simple answer. You come to Jesus. That's about as sophisticated and complicated as it gets in the gospel accounts. Um, different religious schemes tend to make this really, really, really complicated. You got to do all this stuff for God. You got to bring him all this stuff and try to dance around and impress him. But the gospel is very simple. It's that there is hope, there is salvation in this person. Come to him. That's how you participate in the kingdom is you meet the king. And you can even come to this king with weak faith, or what you might feel like is almost no faith. Here's the deal with faith. Um, faith is just the thing that takes you places, that gets you places. All of you exercised a degree of faith coming here tonight. Again, I don't know why you came. You might have you know, there might be the girl who invited you. You want to get to know her better, and that's why you came. But there was faith that coming with her is going to lead somewhere. Or there's faith that maybe I'm going to hear something helpful. There's faith that maybe this will be the beginning of the end of the dry spell between me and God. I don't know what it was, but faith is why you're in the chair you're in right now. Maybe faith in your friend. I really respect him, and if he says this place is great, then I'm going to go. But faith got you here. Faith gets you to Jesus. And faith is simply, even at its weakest, faith is a curious suspicion that Jesus might be who he says he is. And he might do for you what he's done for others and that he promises to do to all of those who come to him. That's faith. Unbelief is um, choosing to believe he is not who he says he is. 
um, unbelief or faithlessness is not a neutral thing. It's a positive belief in an alternate. It's a positive belief that God is not who he says he is. He does not reach, his deepest instinct is not to reach out and heal what's broken, to restore what's bad, to clean what's dirty. That's not who he is. It's faith in an alternate reality. But when you begin to listen to Jesus, really listen to him, and entertain the possibility that maybe, just maybe, this stuff has some validity to it, some legitimacy to it, some relevance to my life, when that begins to happen, look down at your feet. I promise you, you'll see those suckers start to move. And you'll find yourself closer and closer and closer to the king and to his kingdom. What will he do when you see him or he sees you? Dane Ortland is a book uh, author a lot of y'all have read. It's a book we talk a lot about in here. He says, the high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy touches a slug for the first time, his face all scrunched up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. But that's not the Jesus that we see in this passage, right? You're literate. You can read the words. Is that what Jesus did to these unclean people? Did he flee? Did he say, I got to be somewhere in 10 minutes? I'm sorry, maybe next time. He sat. He healed. He listened. We end where we began. So on Sunday night, those desperate Afghans grabbed on with white knuckles to an Air Force jet that they did not know where it was going. But the problem was this. Nobody on that plane could see them clinging to the jet. And the jet couldn't hold them. It couldn't grab onto them. And so as that plane gained altitude over that airport, you began to see person after person falling off of that plane the ground because the plane that they were holding on to couldn't hold back or hold on to them. Friends, desperation alone might get you to the airport. It might get you holding on to the plane. A fervent desire for this to be a new year, a new you might, might draw you toward Jesus, but that's not what saves you. It's the king who saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. Because the difference in Jesus Christ and an Air Force jet is he holds back. With an iron, unbreakable grip on all who come to him for life, for order, for peace, for identity, for meaning, for substance, for communion, for friendship, for innocence, for cleanness and forgiveness, to know God again. That's the difference in Jesus in that plane. So friends, if you don't know him, make your way to the airport and grab on, and you'll find him squeezing your hand until it breaks, holding on to you through all that turbulent process. And if you know him, Listen to him. 
That's the two things he calls you to do in this passage. Jesus went throughout all of Galilee proclaiming he's a very talkative king. He's not hiding. He's not quiet. Listen to him. And you will find in your life and through your life to your friend group, his fame spreading. That's what Matthew said was the result of Jesus going around showing and telling. His fame spread throughout all the region. It'll spread in you, and it'll spread through you in Athens, Georgia. Let's pray. King Jesus, a lot of us, me, don't really even know what kind of oppressive kingdoms we live in. We've read, never really known anything different. I feel like that little teenager in Kabul who's like, what's the big deal? We're poor. We're blind. We're distracted. And so heal us. Give us the grace to repent and author and perfect in everyone in this room faith that sends us running to you and faith that's let us reach out in confidence that you are a king who reaches back out and pulls us up and it was actually you drawing us to yourself all along make this true this fall we pray in your name amen Thank you.